Lastly, um, we would be uh, turning to a specific book. Um, the, about 99% of the time here at Redeemer, we are working through a book of Scripture, just chapter by chapter, week after week. Um, and we have just finished First and Second Samuel, which we spent um, all the fall other than December and the spring in. And last week we were able to wrap up First and Second Samuel. And here in just a few weeks we'll be starting a new book. Um, but every once in a while we'll take a few weeks um, and do something just slightly different. And so what we're going to do for the next few weeks is, is look at some of the, the core values um, of Redeemer. Obviously those are going to be rooted in the Scriptures, um, and so we will be rooted in the Scripture this morning, um, but we'll be bouncing around a little more than usual. Typically, we're just kind of rooted in a chapter, and we stay there, and we'll be bouncing around a little bit more um, today. So 10, ten plus years ago, when uh, Redeemer was, was just kind of a, a, an idea, um, a small group of us sat down in a living room over the course of several weeks and basically had a whiteboard and we just kind of looked at it, and we said, okay, if we're going to lay down all uh, presuppositions about church, like what does Scripture tell us the church is? Right? Not, what, not what does your experience tell us, not what does um, your background tell you, not what does your denomination tell you, like what is Scripture? And we just started trying to throw things on the board, and then going, okay, you said that, now where is that in Scripture? Right? Okay, we've got to take that off, right? or we've got to add that to it. And just really tried to to boil down um, the heart of what we, what we felt like the New Testament church looked like coming from the book of Acts. And so in, in the midst of that conversation, we really kind of fell on, on six kind of core values. Now listen, these are not the, the six only, only core values in Scripture. There's nothing special um, about the number six or anything like that. It was merely um, a, a way for us to begin to kind of guide some of our decision-making ways for us to think through where are we going to prioritize. And there are tons of beautiful and wonderful ministries available. And yet, just as any one individual cannot be a part of everything, I mean, that's difficult even for churches. So we support them. We're a part of them. We allow, like, we, we encourage people to do it. But we, this allowed us to begin to kind of think through who are we going to partner with? How, how are we going to make um, clear decisions that make sense, that are unified? And, and so this morning, we're going to look at the first one. Um, these are not ordered in, in list of priority, but one of the core values here at Redeemer is that we're going to be gospel-centered. And so if you've been with us from the beginning, you've, you've heard this term a lot. Hopefully, if you've only been with us for a little while, this is not an unfamiliar thought or idea. Um, and so I want to encourage us, right? Like we're prone to forget. The reason we gather weekly, right, is we're prone to forget the gospel. Um, even this week, as I was disciplining one of my children with issues of the tongue, right, um, I am being reminded that sometimes my discipline doesn't always look like our good fathers, right, which is meant to be restorative and redemptive, which it's kindness that leads to repentance, and it's, it's discipline, um, and, and yet in the midst of it, I just want to scream, like, just listen to me, right, like, like do, what I, do what I say, and, and so we are prone to forget the gospel even in moments like that. And so um, this morning, as we look at something that for some of you may feel foreign, for some it may feel familiar, that we would just kind of soak in and be reminded of the beauty of the gospel and why we want to center everything that we do here at Redeemer on it. And so um, I considered this. We're not doing it, but I thought about having you all pull your phones out 
and given a number and having you text real quick what's your definition of the gospel, right? To a number and, and collecting those, not as a means of like judging you, right? But just like I, I think sometimes it's helpful for us when we hear a term or a word that is thrown around all the time, and there's a lot of them in the church. Like, what is the gospel? That you would say, yeah, I know what the gospel is, until you have to define it, and then that moment of like panic comes, of like, well, how concise, how robust, do I know what the gospel is? And when Carmen and I used to do student ministry, we would occasionally give a Bible test, um, like of 20 questions to our students, just to say, okay, what, what, are the, what are the four gospels, right? Thinking of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the, a question would be in there, what is the gospel? And they'd be like, well, I just answered that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yet, ultimately, right, that's not the answer that we're looking for. Um, the gospel, and where we're just going to begin this morning is this, is it's good news, right? Luke chapter 2, and if you want to jot down notes um, of passages, you can. Um, Marcus is going to try to keep up with me. Um, and if you want to turn, we're going to be in Mark chapter, or sorry, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 10 and 11. It's a, a passage you most are probably most familiar with at Christmas time. Um, the angels appearing to the shepherds, and it says in verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Right, that, that first and foremost, the gospel is good news. Now we're going to have to define like what that good news is, but it is good news. It is a message that something has happened and we are the beneficiaries of it. Right? It is a message of hope and of redemption. If you turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in verse 29, right, as, as John is beginning his Gospel, he's talking about John the Baptist, and in verse 29 he writes this, The next day he, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world, right? Like that John's first thing is, hey, that, that's the one. And he's come. He's come as a sacrifice. He's come to take away the sin of the world. And then this is Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 1. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. And he's writing to Timothy and he says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death, who's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a teacher and an apostle and a preacher. But, be, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And so ultimately, the gospel is the good news, right, that God is bringing those who are lost and far and apart from him, who have sinned and rebelled, which, by the way, is all of us, back into right relationship and standing with Him. And so it is the story arc of Scripture. Right? As, as Dan, um, just a couple months ago, walked us through a class that we called the meta-narrative. Right? It's the story arc of Scripture. That from Genesis to Revelation, 
through many books and many genres of literature and many authors and many um, stories and many years, there's one story being told. And it's the story that we belong with God. But because of our sin and rebellion, we're opposed and at odds with Him. And God has done the work to restore us. That He has raised up a nation, right? Israel. That He has sent the King that we needed, Jesus. Right? Who lived the life we were meant to live. In trust and faith and obedience. Perfectly. Who died the death that we deserve. Having the wrath of God poured out on Him. Crushed for our sin and our iniquity. And then rose from the grave three days later, having defeated our enemies, sin and Satan and death, and is at the right hand of the Father today until He returns for His people, which at that point, Scripture goes back, right? In Genesis 1 and 2, we see man and woman with God. Genesis, or Revelation 21, right? In the end, it's, it's God's people with God for all time, for all of eternity, right? That God is accomplishing the work that He has set out for. And so all of Scripture is giving us these hooks to hang on that God is bringing us back to where we belong for those who will trust and follow and believe in the finished work of Jesus. It is good news. It is finished news. And listen, we live in an in-between right now. That that work has been accomplished and Jesus is coming back. Right? And that we have a place to belong for eternity. And so there will be a day where ministry will cease. Right? Ministry will cease. But the Gospel will continue to be good news because we will be with our Redeemer for all time. Knowing and worshiping and trusting and following. And this is often kind of presented as, as facts to know. It's information to have in your head. Right? It's, it's stuff to know. And, and sometimes we can, we can leave it there that it's, it's for unbelievers, right? Like once you've come to trust Jesus, this message is no longer for you. It's only for those who don't yet know it. And we view it as almost like a finish line of like you fall into the faith and now you're good and now we'll spend the rest of your time knowing and doing other things. And yet the gospel is not the finish line. It's the starting point. It's where we come in to knowledge of Jesus and then we run after the gospel and after Jesus for the rest of our life. There are implications for the believer and the unbeliever. Listen, this is Colossians chapter 1. Verse 5. Paul is writing and, and he says, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Verse 6. Which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. You listen, he's writing to the church. He's not writing to unbelievers. And he's saying, listen, the gospel is continuing to bear fruit in you. It's continuing to do the work that it was meant to. The gospel is not just the means of salvation right? that gets us into right relationship with God. The gospel is also the message that will continue to bear fruit and to sanctify and to make us look more and more like Jesus for all of our life, right? It is the work of sanctification as well. And so there are some implications for us to look at this morning and why we want to be a church that is centered on the gospel. There are also implications for the unbeliever. 
Paul will write in 2 Corinthians 6.2, today is the day of salvation. Like if you have not believed this message in faith, that you would believe today. Right? That you would trust that Jesus has done what you cannot do and He has secured right relationship with the Father in your stead, in your place. That you can be at peace with God today. No longer an enemy, but a son or a daughter of the King in right relationship now and for all eternity because of the work, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Some implications for us this morning. As we soak in and ask the Spirit to stir our affection for this message, this good news. The first is this. An implication of the Gospel is this. You're loved. You are loved far more than you can imagine or believe. And just as the Gospel can become kind of a cliche, catch-all word that loses significance and meaning, love can be that word too. Like you are loved by the Creator of the universe who is holding all things together right now, who has knit you together, who knows you personally. He loves you. Right? Not some future version of you. Not some clean... He loves you. By name. And He knows the number of hairs on your head. Like He loves you. And He has demonstrated that love. Right? It's not just a, a flippant, hey, love you, or love y'all. It's been demonstrated. That Jesus goes to the cross, right? Romans 5, 8. While you were still sinners, at your worst, right? It's not on your best, cleaned up, I kind of got my stuff together today, day, where he's like, okay, come on in, right? You've, you've impressed me. On your worst, most shameful, broken day that you don't ever want to think about or remember, a day that maybe those closest to you don't even know about, like on the worst of you, he loves you. And He showed it by going to the cross and dying for His enemies on that day to bring you into the family. Right? Like He's taken His enemies and made them family through the cross of Christ and through Jesus' resurrection. Listen, we are prone to forget this. Right? We're, we're prone to make this a flippant thing of, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm loved by God. You're loved by God. Would the Spirit stir in us today? That is no small thing. Would we not muddy the waters and think, well, I've got to, I've got to earn it, or I've got to do something. It's been given. It's been demonstrated. It is yours. The work is done. It has been accomplished. And you will get no additional love. You have His love. All of it. Because of Jesus. This is good news. It's good news. It's the Gospel saying you didn't do it, He did, and you get the benefits of it. The second implication is this. It's not just that we're loved people, that we belong. right? Like That we have an identity that is secure. Right? Like much of our world is desperate for a place to belong. Longing for a place to, to, to call their own. To have some sense of identity. To figure out who they are. And in John 10, 28, right, Jesus says, listen, those who are in my hand are secure in my hand. No one will take them from me. We belong to Him, and we are secure with Him. Revelation 21 reminds us, right, again, that we will be with Him, right? We'll be at the, the table with Him for all time. We have a family. It's the church. We, we belong 
to it. Back to John 1 for just a moment. This time in uh, verse 12. Here's how John writes this. But to all who did receive him, meaning Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Right? We're not just some like mass of people. We come in as family with a seat at the table. Right? As we were in first and second Samuel, and we looked at the story of Mephibosheth, right? Who was an heir of the former king who was deserving of death right, of, of, from the new king. And the new king comes in and says, no, 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 you're lame, you're crippled, you're a grandson of my enemy, have a seat at my table. We saw grace and mercy right, that is reflected in that's what Jesus does with us. And he gives us a seat at the table as the lame and crippled, as an enemy of him. Right? We're not put off in the corner and say, yeah, yeah, they belong to me. We are given a seat at the table for all time. We have a place to belong, and we belong to Him, and it is secure. Listen, one of the dangers of this is that we can begin to just assume some things, though. And the church can begin to not share the gospel as good news. They assume that people know the gospel. And they assume that people believe the gospel. And then what we'll see is right, are, are people walking away going, I never knew Jesus. I knew some things about the church. I knew some things about Jesus. I was told to believe this, but I've never come to faith in Him. And people walk away because we're just assuming. right? Like I've heard people say to me, there's no one in Pampa to minister to. Everyone knows the Gospel. That's not a true statement. right? That's not a true statement. And the Gospel continues to do a work in us. And so Jesus is King. And so we obey Him, and we follow Him, and we trust Him, and we recognize Him, and we rejoice in Him. We have an identity in that we're like, that's Him, and we go after Him. It's not just things that we know, but it's obedience to Him. The third implication is this. It's not just that you're loved, not just that you have a place to belong. It does affect our eternity, right? And sometimes this is the only one that's mentioned. And it's a significant one. It's a significant implication, but it's not the only implication. This is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the whole world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believeth in Him would not perish, but would have eternal life. Like, that is significant. That we no longer fear death because we know our eternal destination. For those who know and trust and love Jesus, death is merely the entrance into eternity with Him. That's why Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 15, right? the death of death was the death of Jesus. We don't fear it anymore. That our enemy has lost its sting. In 2 Corinthians 5, he writes that those who die right, are, are absent from the body, but they're present with the Lord. That we don't fear death. To His disciples in John 14, as they're going, hey, Jesus, you're about to go to the cross, we think. We're not sure what's happening here. We're, we're fearful. We're worried. He says, listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But take heart. I'm coming back. And you have access to me through prayer. And I'm going to leave the Spirit for you. Right? Like He's giving them hope in, 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 in eternity. And so, church, what it can mean for us as believers is that we have peace in difficult circumstances. 
when facing death, death does not, we don't fear it like those without hope. We don't fear it as those without peace. With sickness. Think about missions for a moment. People going off to far off dangerous places where death is not a certainty, but it could be a like, very likely outcome. Like, Why would someone gladly, joyfully, willingly go and do that? They don't, they don't worry about what happens after this life. If they know that there's more to their life than this life, right? that they belong to someone who loves them and has secured for them an identity and a place for eternity. Listen, there's a lot of money spent right, to avoid death, to avoid sickness, and to avoid the thought that that might someday happen for us, right? To kind of just drown out. And yet Scripture gives lasting, anchored peace. That death does not hold final sway over us. That we belong to Jesus, and in that we have hope and peace and joy in this life and in the next. And so listen, believing the good news, right, is often talked about. Like You believe it, and you gain eternity, and you gain some love, and, and think, right, it's, it's the gospel believe. But where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning is this, is what about the gospel not just believed but applied to our lives? Because in our, in our belief, we're not immediately taken from this life. We continue to live it in the midst of sin and chaos. And so how does the gospel apply to our lives and grow us in Christ-likeness? Listen, it's not just a tack-on to your priorities. It's not a merit badge, right? That you're like, well, I'm going to continue to do my life, but I've now got this get-out-of-hell-free card. right? I've now got this thing that marks me as Jesus's. Right? That's not, it's not do your life, do your priorities, and have Jesus. It changes everything. Listen to Matthew 13. Jesus is teaching in parables. And in verse 44... He says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Right? You can imagine a man walking, right? and he sees a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Right? Jesus is in these like, kind of short, kind of pithy um, things here. He's talking about a guy who's seeking it, finds this incredible pearl, and is like, I don't need any of my other pearls. I've got this one. Another man who finds a treasure that no one knows is there, and in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that piece of property. In that moment, that man would have looked insane. What's, what's so special about that piece of property? Why would you buy that piece of property? And yet he is joyfully exchanging all that he has to have it because he knows what he's found. He knows what's there. But it costs them something. It costs both of them something. One gives up all of his other pearls. One gives up all of his worldly possessions in order to have this thing of inherent, eternal, beautiful value. And people around them would not have understood. They would have thought, you're insane. Listen to how Paul writes this. This is Philippians. We'll come back to 
to Matthew 13 in just a moment. Philippians 3. Verse 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Like Paul is saying, I specifically have experienced Matthew 13, 44. In my life, everything is rubbish. Everything is of no value compared to knowing Jesus. Like I'll take that compared to anything. And so church, it means you give something up to know Jesus. It may be that you give up power. That you give up prestige. That you give up financial opportunity, advancement, approval, comfort and ease in this life. The Scripture will say this, what does it benefit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? What Matthew 13 and what Philippians um, 3 are telling us is this, is that when you see the value, the inherent worth of Jesus and of the good news that's been laid out for us, you're willing to walk away from anything to have it. And it's not a fair exchange, right? Like you're not going, ah, I'm not sure. You're saying, no, I want that and I'll give up everything in order to have it. And it listen, to the world, you may look crazy. Like, why are you making the decisions that you're making? Why are you following Jesus? Why are you not making more money? Right? Why are you not having more things? Why are you not going more places? Why? Jesus. Jesus is it. And church, there will be a day where everything will come to light for the believer and the unbeliever, where everything will be judged, thoughts and intents and motivations, and life's work, and for those who gave their life to Jesus and then served and trusted faithfully and obediently in that good news, there will be crowns given, right? rewards given. Well done, good and faithful servant. You, you saw the value, you trusted it, and you lived accordingly. By my Spirit, by my Word, Paul will say that there are those who will say, eat and drink and be merry, or tomorrow we die. And we are surrounded by people who are saying, I've got to wring everything I can out of this life. Because this life is all there is. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. There's this life, and there's the life to come. So exchange the lesser thing for the greater thing. See the glory and the joy and the good news. Not begrudgingly, but joyously. Because if we've tasted and we've seen, then we can serve. And we can go to hard places or we can stay in places. We can hold loosely to the things in our life. We can lack fear. And we don't have to live for our own personal ease and comfort. Because there's something bigger at stake. We are glad to make that exchange but we have to be reminded that we're prone to forget that it's worth it. So listen, the gospel then affects every aspect of life. Life. Let me give you just a few examples. Our finances and our generosity. Right? Like we become a generous people who hold loosely to our time and our finances and our things. Why? Because God has given generously to us. 
And so when we are tempted to hold tightly to things, that doesn't look like Jesus. Jesus gave generously everything we need for life and godliness, has rescued us at no cost to ourselves, at an eternal, right, at, at, at a huge cost to himself. He was generous. So the gospel isn't just that we know that. The gospel is that we then live in light of that. That we believe that He is worth it, and so then we walk accordingly. The gospel affects our marriages. How? Because Christ calls the church His bride. And He demonstrates His love for His bride. He doesn't just say it. And He sanctifies, and He transforms, and it's eternal. It's permanent. And so we then begin to live in our marriages sacrificially, seeing love transform permanently. Demonstrate it's not just said. All right, we begin to live in light of the gospel in our relationships, with our finances. Church, we pursue people, people who are far from the Lord, people who right now would say they hate this place, they hate these people, they hate this teaching, they hate Jesus. We pursue them. Why? Not because right, we, we, we want punishment, we want persecution, but because Jesus pursued His enemies. Us. Like He came for us when we hated Him, when we were at war with Him, when we would have died apart from Him. He has pursued us at a great personal cost. And so we live on pursuit. Well, if we're going to pursue people, it may mean there's some cost to us. It affects our time and our comfort, and our ease. Because we're going after a hard thing. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Because we've received it. We serve. And if necessary, we go without for the sake of others. And why? Philippians 2. Jesus left heaven. Right? He left it all behind to come after those who would crucify Him, would spit at Him, would crush Him, would not believe Him, would not trust Him, would not... like He came and left behind the comfort of heaven, the ease of that for us. And so we emulate, imitate, reflect our good Father. We're hospitable. We tell people you can belong in hopes that you'll believe. Because Jesus makes His enemies His friends. Makes His enemies His brothers and sisters in the kingdom. Like He is hospitable. Set with those who were far from Him and brought them into relationship. So we do the same. We say that all life has value. Right? All life. And we're not racist. Why? Because Ephesians 2 will tell us this. That God... It, through Christ, has torn down the dividing walls of hostility. Right? He's brought those who are near and those who are far off, and He's brought them together. And all we need to be in common with one another is Jesus. That is sufficient amongst every other thing that would divide us. And that we know that there will be a day where those from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will stand around singing praise to the King because they will have seen that the treasure was worth it. And they'll have exchanged this life that one. And we forgive because we were forgiven, right? Even at cost to ourselves. Listen, as we live out our beliefs in the gospel, 
right? We become more Christ-like. It's not just things that we know, but it's very, the very actions of our day. And here's one of the more encouraging things. We get to do it together. You're not asked to go out and be solo in this. We're called together as a family, as a church, to live out the one another's of Scripture, to encourage, to bear one another's burdens, to, to hold each other up. It's why we call our groups during the week gospel community. Because you're experiencing and seeing and feeling the implications of the gospel at a personal cost to you. Because it costs you time and energy. It costs you resources. Um, it may cost you some convenience. Sometimes it may cost you some feelings, right? Because guess what? We're, we're, we're sinners who are there trying to figure out this thing together. It's not perfect people. And they're not all your best friends. But the gospel draws us together. And it begins to be this apologetic of, you hurt them, and they're forgiven. Oh my word, that's huge. Why would you do that? Because I've been forgiven. You were patient with them. You pursued them. Why would you continue to be rejected over and over and over again? Because Jesus pursued me, and I rejected the gospel. Right? Like we are emulating and imitating our good Father together. And so the final thing is this. It means that we want people to belong. And it means that it's okay if you're not okay today. You don't have to have it all figured out today. Think about some of the the stories of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. She wasn't okay. The woman caught in adultery, really not okay. right? And yet he meets them where they are, he ministers to them, and he sends them on the way, trusting him, following him, their life transformed forever. Not just with facts to know, but a new life. And so you don't have to have it all together today. We don't. You don't have to be okay. But we're not going to stay there. We're going to pursue Jesus together. And we're going to believe, um, Pastor Ray Ortland in Tennessee says this, that the gospel, the good news, the good message, plus some time, plus some safety because we're living out the gospel, will lead to transformation. And for 10 years now, we've seen the Lord do that here. That just the consistent leaning into the gospel and giving people a safe place to be, and the Spirit some time to work, we change. And we change for our good, but we change for the glory of God because we look more like Jesus. We live out, trust, and believe the gospel. And so in everything that we do here, we want to point us back to that story, that message, that good news. We want to sing it. We want to live it. We want to pray it. We want to preach it. We want to make our decisions based on it because we have been loved by the King of the universe who's bringing us back to Him and has given us a message as ambassadors to point out to the rest of the world, you can have this too. You can have it too. So this morning, you respond to the message if you haven't ever. And if you have, would you give thanks to God that He's rescued you and then ask Him, where, where do I need to, to remember the gospel in my decision-making, in my spending, my relationships, in my family, in my contentment, in all of these areas of life that the Spirit would stir and move among us now? Let's pray.
Father, thank you for beautiful news. That we are a redeemed, restored, rescued people of no effort of ours, at no cost to ourselves. God, would you stir something in us that would, would not let us move too quickly beyond that? To not be numb to that, but instead to be joyously responsive to it. That there is nothing that we would not lay down or to have you. Or that people would look at the lives of those in this room and there would be areas of our life they would say, You're, what's wrong with you? You're insane. Why are you making the decisions you are? And that we could say, because of Jesus. I can go without because of Jesus. I can serve because of Jesus. I can be generous because of Jesus. Not beating our, our, our chest. Jesus saying thank you. Looking like our Father. So God, would you speak? Would you stir? Would you work among us now? Would you receive our praise and our honor and our worship? In Jesus' name, amen.